Hey everybody, this is Tyler with the Grassroots Living Soil Podcast. This is going to be episode number 11. Right now we have Brandon Rust on. Um, He is a cultivator in Oklahoma. He's a very, very interesting cultivator because um, he is merging science and application and actually physically doing it yourself. So um, I'm excited to have Brandon on here. He's about the the second cannabis grower we have on here. to help us bring all the knowledge we've been learning to practice and to, you know, application in your small tent, your small grow, or, you know, maximizing your square footage when you're um, in a commercial space and paying, you know, so much money for taxes and and prices per pound and, and that whole process through that many of us just really don't get to understand and, and uh, see. Um, so without further ado, this is, this is Brandon. I'd like to, like Brandon, just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what's, what you are, who you are and what's going on. Sure. My name is Brandon Russ. I've been cultivating cannabis for about 20 years now. I'm originally from San Diego. I, uh, worked with the kind of infamous, uh, bull rider crew out of San Diego with, uh, you know, they did the uh, Afghani bull rider, my partner, and we grew that for a long time. I had an opportunity to come out to Oklahoma to get into the legal space after, you know, 18 years on the traditional market and uh, been very successful using, taking an uh, organic approach um, and utilizing the sciences as well as data collection, including uh, soil saturated paste, tissue and sap testing. Um, you can find a majority and body of my work I share on uh, Instagram, and my Instagram is at rust, R-U-S-T dot Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N. And you can find links to both my company, Bokashi Earthworks, and my farm, Black Label Organics, um, in the bio. Thank you. Thank you, man. Um you're running the grassroots raised beds, you're running living soil, and you've got super healthy plants. And I feel like, you know, me and you have the same mind frame as in like, you know, healthy plants are going to win the race or be able to be those, those athletes that can win that race and get through that long drive that they, that, that we're asking them to go through to produce a really high quality medicine in the end. Um, you know, and I would like to start this out as like, um, I think baselines of a few different things I want to go over today that I feel like, you know, applying and applicating is, is really a major thing that people don't understand. Um, you know, especially when it starts out from a basic nutrient mix or a foliar spray. Um, you know, I've personally have dived deep into, um, you know, how to build a foliar spray and to stack several things in there. And I can't tell you how many times I've built a foliar spray and I've got my pH meter in there. And then all of a sudden it just, goes one way or the other and is a super high or super low. And I'm trying to get it, you know, in between that six to 6.5 pH for this foliar spray for the maximum absorption. Um, am I being crazy with that too crazy? I mean, when I'm building a foliar spray or is that, that all stuff that I really need to take in mind or, or what do you, it was kind of your general practice. Well, here's the thing, right? It depends on, first of all, it depends on, um, what you're, you're trying to, uh, fully, uh, apply as a foiler application. Um, you have to remember that when you mix water, because water is a universal solvent, that it will do different things, the chemistry. Um, so if you add something like uh, ferrous iron, 
iron uh, iron sulfate, for example, um, which is Fe2 plus attached to a sulfur ion. So it balances. It's very soluble in water. But what happens is the the anion is cleaved off in the water and then the iron starts to oxidize immediately. And gets right? brown. Because it's like it's yeah. like a rusty so when color you and... see exactly right. So if you if you're trying to apply iron as a, as iron sulfate, for example, you could see by almost by the time that you finish you go through your backpack that that might have turned red, right? So there's there's different ways that you have to utilize chemistry to keep that in a form that is available, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's gonna it's gonna be you know your pH. But also, if you can chelate that, we know that in nature, from all the different science articles, that humic and fulvic acids are natural chelators and will hold on to those um, to those ions from the iron in an available form, so that way it can be utilized. Um, and then also, you know, if there's things that are being mixed with it, because those ions will attach to other anions um, and there's different types of, you know, bonding and chemistry. So same thing that happens with soil, right? You'll have different things that are happening. That's Mm -hmm. why, you know, soil chemistry is always changing. And that's why we're looking at things like hydrology, pH, which stands for potential hydrogen, which is important because hydrogen is usually in H plus or OH three minus and it depends, you know, like those chemicals affect the way that other chemicals react. Yeah. And, and that makes a lot of sense because when I did my SAP testing last year and I found out that I was very low in iron, I went to apply the iron and noticed whenever I was mixing those that it would kind of turn the water brown and this and that. And I wasn't getting in a, much of a change on my SAP testing, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. it was like a week or two later, boom, it was like, damn, I'm still low in iron. Like, and I yeah. try to kick it up in the mixture solution. Like, okay, maybe I'll go from one or two grams of iron sulfate to maybe two or, or you know, three or four. And I just get even worse of a reaction, I guess. You know, it's it's the reason why so many people are interested in redox reactions and particularly soil redox reactions with the chemistry that are involved with um, the nutrients and minerals that plants utilize for all the photosynthetic and protein filling capabilities. <clears throat> so amino chelation is kind of another key factor. There's product like a biomin which is amino chelated. And so what it is, it's a low percentage. It'll be maybe like 5% of amino chelated micronutrient. But the thing is that 5% is available. Mm. So amino chelation and different chelation methods for different types of chemicals really helps. Also, when we're talking about foiler applications, you have to remember that you need to be using clean water, right? Yeah that has nothing in it. And the reason is, is because if you're getting, um, if you're getting water that's high in like sodium, bicarbonate or chloride, those are all going to be, uh, cations that push off potential nutrients that are good, you know? So sounds like you got some beneficial cats around you. There, yeah, I'm in the office, and so we have we we're waiting for 
um, we're waiting to move because we started escrow on a piece of property with a house and we're in a rental and we can't have the cat there. So oh, congratulations. Cat's at office right now. Thank yeah. you. It's nothing special. It's humble, but uh, it's almost five acres, which I can build a homestead and just be more oh, independent wow. and self-sufficient. Oh, congratulations, man. I bought a house and it's in a residential neighborhood and I'm happy with that, but I can only imagine how happy I'd be if I was actually in a in a place that I can, you know, get out there and farmstead and do things and actually do stuff with my land and have room for a boat and, you know, my old truck and all kinds of stuff like that. So yeah. I feel you, man. That's exciting. You know, growing food and uh, self-sufficiency is really the path to true independence, especially in a day and age where we see a lot of like weird, crazy things that are oftentimes hard to make sense of. So getting yeah. back to nature and getting back to the roots of the foundation of what we are essentially all part of is very beneficial uh, for the for the mind, in my opinion. Definitely, definitely. It's like turn your turn your property into a grocery store, you know, in a certain sense. So get everything you exactly. need right there. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, foliar sprays and, you know, because part of, you know, previous podcasts, I've had Jenny on and, and David Olson, mm-hmm. the guy who's created our beneficial microbes and stuff like that. And, and I think it's going to lead them into sap testing and saturated paste testing and stuff like that. And I think the, the hardest part about those things is translating those things once you get them and, yep. you know, putting them into practice and how to actually utilize mm-hmm. them and stuff. So what do you, do you have some stuff you want to say as far as that goes? Yeah. Okay. So, <sighs> We have, we're looking, the more data that we have over a longer set of time, the easier it is to translate with what is happening visually, right? Like, oh, I can, I can physically see if, you know, my plants are not doing well or if they are doing better than they did last time, if they have any types of symptoms or insect pressure is higher, all those all different types of factors, but we're looking at what's in the soil, how that soil falls into solution when it's watered, which can be approved upon with an other sets of data, which I'll, t- I'll get into in a minute. And then we're looking at tissue tests to see the total percentage makeup of Thing of the macronutrients such as nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, calcium, sulfur, and magnesium. Did I say that? I might have already said that. Um, those those five as a percentage, and then micronutrients as uh, PPMs. And there's a difference, and you have to understand that there's a difference between tissue and what tissue is going to tell you, and then what sap's going to tell you. Right, because tissue is going to give you an overall percentage of the makeup. Sap is going to tell you it, like what is available if there's an adequate amount and how it's and how the nutrients, the mobile nutrients, can move internally inside of the plant. So this gives you a huge, huge benefit because when you're looking at a, a sap test, and let's say you're looking at fo- Phosphorus, right? Phosphorus is mobile. If you have an adequate amount of phosphorus, because what sap, well, let me back up. When you're taking sap, they're testing two different locations of the plant. They're testing the bottom location of the plant that are fully photosynthetic, 
parts of the plant and then top portions that aren't too new in growth, but are fully developed, fully photosynthetic top leaves, right? And you get samples from each. And so what it tells you is how the nutrients are translocated. And if we're looking at like phosphorus, if you can see that you have adequate amount, if you have a, if you have a kind of a standard, right? That say, this is what I want to see in my soil to have a good soil. And then you're looking at saturated paste. And if it's not falling into solution the way that it should, you go back to the soil and you amend to see where that needs to be at to get it to the point where you're watering to get to everything is adequate in a biologically available form that's the plant can utilize right away, right? It falls into solution. How does your soil fall into and stay in solution so that the plant has access to all of the nutrition it needs? Sim- similar to how somebody who had a really, really dialed in nutrient regimen of salts were going to, um, you know, put it into a, a, a hydroponic media. Yeah. Okay. It works like the the same way as the plants. I can get into the this other part about chemicals in a little bit. Um, and then what we're looking at is everything that falls in the solution, what's actually becoming available. Mm-hmm. So we have a baseline for what the soil should have as adequate nutrition. Uh, we have a baseline for the saturated paste which is how many ppms of calcium, how many ppms of magnesium, you know, what are the proper balances for the major cations? We're looking at that as well. So if if we have a baseline that works all across the board, generally for cannabis in general, that's where you start at. And then you're looking at tissue. So every different variety of cannabis will uptake things a little differently. And you can see this because you could have the same variety in the exact same soil, but the tissue will look different, Mm. right? Or the sap test will be different. And that's how you can dial in specifics for nutritional needs for uh, specific varietals. Now, when we're looking at saturated paste tests and seeing what's falling in solution, we're looking at the tissue and sap to see how that is being uptaken by the plant. So we get a percentage and if we're no, and if we know that we've been maintaining, maintaining this consistency across the soil and across the soil solution, and then we're seeing it maintain the same over the period of a testing, you know, if you're doing like biweekly testing, you know, you can see if you keep everything in balance, that, that should be in balance too. Right. And you should see these meeting it at the target levels, the baseline levels, mm-hmm. I should say. And then in SAP, what you're doing is you're going to read how it's going, moving internally. Right. Because for immobile nutrients, they need to fill up, uh, they need to fill up, pretend it's like a cup. Right. And that's the leaf. It needs to fill up all that nutrition before it can move on to the next and one. go to the next one, right? Yep. So if you're growing plants and it's growing biomass, it could be defi- you might be able to get enough to keep maintaining growth, but what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to fulfill all of those 
all of those ranges throughout the entirety of the plant as it increases in biomass it grows. Now we're looking at this this um, phosphorus we're going back to, right? If we have the adequate phosphorus um, and we can see that it's starting to, to pull phosphorus from the bottom and they'll give you a graph on these tests that says, here's your levels, here's the adequate levels. It'll give you your parts per million of what's actually available in the tissue. And then you want to be able to maintain those like equally across the board. If you see that the lower part of the plant is starting to translocate to keep up with the growth, you can preemptively act and say, oh, you know what? My plant needs more phosphorus because I can see that it's starting to pull. Ever be- even before it ever shows a symptom of deficiency, you can start correcting that, mm-hmm. right? And that, it. It, yeah, and that's the thing. You're not acting like, oh, I need to do this because my plant is showing a symptom. That's the thing. You could have a plant that looks beautifully beautiful, amazing, and you can't really know that it's maximizing its genetic potential until you start utilizing the sap tests because that's when you're able to make sure that you have all of the micronutrients that are so important for so many uh, enzymatic processes and protein, amino acid building, like it. all of these... You may not need them as abundantly, but when it comes to unlocking the genetic potentials, turning on um, internal signaling for them to be able to fight off pathogens and resist disease, you need to have adequate amounts of things like zinc and copper and boron and manganese and molybdenum. And these are important. Iron is a photosynthetic chemical. These things are really important and if you can't get them in equal amounts, you know, the law is that it's the law of minimums. You know, the the thing that hinders you the most is going to be where it's deficient. You know, if everything else is great, but your iron is low because of the the way that it goes through a, a, reductions, a reduction state in, in soil, and it oxidizes into Fe3 in unavailable form, your plant can get... Aren't, isn't going to be able to photosynthesize as adequately, you know? And so, efficiently. yeah, yeah. It, and, it, and it's also, so all of these things are just as important as your macronutrients. You need to be able to, if you can look at that internally and see and maintain those adequately, that's where you can really, really, um, you know, see the increase in, in the yields and quality in these types of systems, you know? Yeah. And I think there's also, I remember hearing, I don't remember which ones, but there's possibly some micro macronutrients if you're lacking them and you're already past a certain point in plant growth, uh, you know, foliar spraying them or adding them, is not going to do any help for you? Cause you're already kind of past its point of need for that thing or, or the bucket's too low for that. Is that, that, I think that's true, right? So there's something that I like to call front loading, and I do this in veg where I get my um, my nitrogen and calcium, potassium really high in tissue. And that way, what you can do is if you do run into a problem later on, it's not going to be as severe because you have backed up reserves. And this is when I'm talking about nitrogen, the source of nitrogen that I use that 
people know, kind of know me for is using the amino acids, right? I use the soy protein hydrolysate and amino acids offer kind of a biological hack because L-chain amino acids are available in the root zone. They're available to the microorganisms, excuse me, the microorganisms in the soil. And because all of those amino acids have a nitrate molecule that's associated with it. So what happens is the plant usually will, um, you know, it'll spend metabolic energy converting nitrogen into proteins and then uh, into, you know, into amino acids and then into proteins. So you can kind of skip a portion which allows a little bit more energy conservation, which is one thing that I, that I try, that I think about a lot is how can I get, you know, the things that are needed in an, in a way that is going to be easier for the plant. Right. And that's why things like the chelated uh, micronutrients are really important, but I started getting off track. Um, yeah. And I where think were it, we at? Um, it translating, you know, the sap testing and applying those things to, to different stuff. Um, but I mean, let's, let's put it into, to real, in real practice, because I know after listening to this, there's going to be a bunch of people that just go and get a sap test. You know, maybe there's not a lot of people that are actually going to go through the process of sending in their water and soil and allowing a laboratory to do a saturated paste test for you and, um, and amending ahead of, ahead of time. Like, um, I know there's a lot of people like, um, uh, a buddy of mine, he didn't amend his soil at all. He didn't do any sap testing at all. Everything's going great and he's got the best plants he's ever done, but I've convinced him to do some sap testing. And, um, I know he's going to have some similar problems like I did. Like he's going to be low in copper, iron, yep, um, and, right there. I'm, I'm going to talk, talk about those next. Yeah. Copper, iron, he's probably going to be low in boron because he's got, you know, holes in his stems and you can sit there and just squeeze the stock and just, you know, compress the whole thing. It's not solid. So, you know, and, and I know, uh, and obviously that's going to translate, you know, copper and, or excuse me, uh, boron and, and calcium, uh, yeah. I've always heard need to be applied together. So let's say he's got these four deficiencies. Is he going to try to try to do all, uh, correct all four of these deficiencies in one foliar spray, or is he going to do those things kind of separately? Like, how are we going to help him attack this situation? Well, here's the thing about the micronutrient sulfates. So they're water soluble, Right. And because there are natural ways to make and keep those things in a bioavailable form, you could either, there's different routes you could take. Let's say you wanted to just do copper. You could just do copper sulfate mm -hmm. and you could water your cop, the copper sulfate in until you have an adequate amount on your soil test and that that's falling into solution and at the right levels that you'd like to see. There are also, you can, you do the same thing where you water it in, but you use something like a humic or fulvic acid at a rate of, I think I do 20 milliliters of 90% fulvic acid per gallon of water. Oh, wow. That's a lot. And, and I'll do a micronutrient mix where I'll mix the fulvic in first into the water, make sure that it's thoroughly dissolved. And then I'll add in the micronutrients and I'll water those in. Okay. And you will do more than just copper by itself. Yeah, I do. But here's the thing. If I'm making a min, a top dress, 
I'll oftentimes just do a top dress with it. You know, so if I'm, if I get a a saturated pace test back and I know that I need a little bit and I need to raise my pH a little bit, let's say, let's say I need a little bit more calcium and I need maybe uh, some more magnesium, some copper and some iron. That's something that's could be really common, Mm -hmm. right? I'll make a top dress based off of the data for the baseline target levels that I'm trying to meet. And since I'm doing, since I'm doing production, um, like I have 22 yards per soil bed, right. And I have four of those per greenhouse. So I'll do the math to see how much per yard I need. And I know that I have 88 yards in there, 22 per bed, and I'll make up the top dress amendment and I'll go in, I'll mix that up and then I'll top dress everything all, all together. And then that'll get watered in right after it's top dressed. Yep. And then, um, well, what about, and, and let's say going back to the situation is my buddy, he's going to get a sap test. He's only going to get a sap test. He's not going to have time to do a saturated pace test and he's going to get that back and he's going to be low on the copper and the iron and then boron and calcium. And should he be addressing those in a sap test, uh, since he's two, I mean, in a foliar spray, since he's about two weeks from flower. Yeah. So one of the things that I talked about earlier is amino chelated micronutrients, and those are pretty safe to spray on plants, especially if you're in veg. They has, it has like, I think 1% um, nitrogen. Uh, and that is because of the amino acid they use for the chelation process. And there's a company called Biomin. They're relatively inexpensive. Again, you're, it's five, it's literally 5% of a of a mineral right that's a that's amino chelated the rest is 95 percent is water so you're buying a gallon of 95 percent water and that's like so i i tell people if you can get you know the amino acid that's responsible for the which is what i'm going to be working on here uh and do it yourself out of a mineral sulfate and do the chelation process yourself, you're going to save money on a commercial scale. But if you're, you know, a home grower and you're busting out, you know, a, a tent with a five by five and a grassroots bed and you're doing that kind of stuff and you want to add a little bit of micronutrients, it's not going to kill you to go spend 20 bucks or $25 on a gallon of, um, chelate, uh, amino chelated, which is an organic, it's organic. It's, I think those things are OMRI certified, CDFA certified. And, and that's just a, a chelation liquid, a liquid, uh, liquid to chelate the, the minerals you're adding in there. Yeah. It comes already ready to go. So you can get boron, zinc, manganese, you can get iron, you can get, uh, mm. magnesium, like okay. they have like everything you need as a amino chelated form. You could, use this as an like a nutrient solution as well once these things are chelated they shouldn't be interacting together so i mean i just started working with the amino chelated micronutrients so as i get more data and as i get more data sets back after i've used them i'll be able to talk more on it but that's one of the ways that I know that I've read the science behind it. I've seen it um, work uh, a small amount. And so we're getting more into that because that's one way that you can make up for deficiencies really, really easily in tissue. Because here's the thing, 
on my test, I might have an adequate amount of, let's say, boron or copper, right, in my soil. And I don't really want to keep adding it because it could cause imbalances. Then it would, it's a really good option. And that's one of the reasons why I actually do a lot of foiler applications with magnesium. Because magnesium can be antagonistic to the calcium and the potassium that I'm trying to kind of push harder in flour. And so I would much rather not push the magnesium too high in soil because it falls into solution a lot easier because it's so much more soluble. Um, and so doing a foiler application of that can give me the adequate amounts of magnesium that I need without upsetting the balance in the soil. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a major, major point that, that people need to get going on. Um, so for me last year, when I was getting my SAP tests back, I was getting, you know, just straight sulfate forms of all of these products and taking, you know, a couple grams of copper, a couple grams of iron, mixing them together in a five gallon bucket. Um, I was, you know, using my well water, which after my, my water tests coming back, it was like somewhere ranges in between 22 and 47 PPMs. You know, it's very, very good water. People are just like, oh my God, this is like God's blessing to a farmer in a certain sense. So, you know, that's my starting material. And then, you know, I'm, I'm mixing those pieces together and I've got my um, my pH meter in there and I'm looking at the PPMs and the EC and the pH. Um, and then at the end, I'm in a little, or throwing in a little bit of uh, surfactant um, to, you know, obviously help it stick to the plant. Um, putting it into my um, spray can, which is usually a, a metal spray can that's got a pressure gauge on it that I pressurize and I just make sure it's at a super high pressure and a, a really low droplet size, the lowest droplet size that I can. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything I'm th- going throughout that process that sounds like any major errors, errors you can hear? Okay, so first of all, clean water is excellent. You always need to start with clean water. But also, you have to remember that the time that you apply is going to be really relative to the plant's ability to take it up. Because if your plants are shut down, the samata aren't open, they will, they're not going to uptake that, you know? So VPD is really important. Um, if you're going to be applying foiler applications, making sure that uh, you're in the right ranges um, clean water again, that's really important. Um, but here's the thing. I'm still, I'm still messing with the same thing, right? The reason why I stopped doing the mineral sulfates, um, as a foiler was because I wasn't seeing a whole lot of increase, right? Yeah, same here last year. And so, the thing is, we have to go back to we have to go back to nature to solve the issue, right? And we and and that's what it is. It's it's because these things react in water because water's a solvent, right? So, um, being able to keep them in a biologically available form, I think, is kind of the the trick, and that's what I'm working on right now, is figuring out. You know, which method, whether it be the combination of humic and fulvic, if it's just a combination of fulvic, just a combination of humic and that mineral sulfate, or if using an amino chelator or a combination and what that combination might look like 
to be able to maximize the efficient use or or be able to find a certain type of microorganism that's going to um that's going to either reduce or oxidize the the component in the that's already in the soil so that way it can become available okay Nice, nice. Well, I think David Olson with uh, the concentrated biology products we do, he commonly references this biology being able to oxidize um, nutrients and proteins and minerals and stuff like that. So maybe he could possibly help us out with that because he's always told me to uh, use our beneficial microbes and microbe foods when applying these products as well. So maybe I need to heed that information a little bit more too. Yeah, and there's a reason why I do the. Uh the micro uh micro plus consortium it, which is the it's an em consortium it's several species of lactic acid bacteria uh things like uh, bacillus subtilis bacillus fermentarium it's a purple non-sulfur bacteria right up pseudomonas pleurostrius i believe it's pronounced and then it's a saccharomyces cerevisiae which is just common brewer's yeast but this call but this you know, this particular consortium can really help with uh, nutrient cycling and the out competition of pathogens because they're flocculative anaerobes. And then the uh, non-purple sulfur bacteria actually has four different modes of metabolism. And so it can, you know, it can sequester, the way it sequesters nutrients is it can, take, uh, it can pull from inorganic and organic compounds. And it can also, uh, uh, perspire um, anaerobically through fermentation. <clears throat> and then you have all these other bacteria that are creating compounds like acetic acid and lactic acid and other types of weak organic acids, amino acids, which again can chelate these um, uh, micronutrients, uh, nutrients in soil. And what we've seen with the testing, I did some testing with uh, Bryant uh, Morrison, who would be an excellent guest, the soil doctor on IG. And what we were seeing the most benefit with this particular consortium was its ability to um, to free up uh, phos- phosphate from inorganic or from mineral phosphorus, um, which is the only plant available, you know, it, it, it uh phosphorus is, is phosphate so even in low levels if the levels were low in soil it was still able to cycle it very very efficiently and then what we are also seeing is that it um it cycles manganese mm. very efficiently as well so those were the two um that jumped out immediately it obviously has impact on a wider range of just those two be just simply because of the organic chemistry that's happening in the soil. And that's something that I'm like just going down rabbit holes of right now is trying to understand the soil chemistry, redox and oxidation states, how these things occur, how to, you know, get things that, cause I can see on tests, there's thing, there's plenty of something but I often don't see it being available mm-hmm. on the the saturated paste test. So it's not falling in solution, which means 
that it's not going to the chemical changes that it needs to become biologically available, right? And so it's not just about, it's a, it's about uh, so much stuff. It's about the system as a whole and how can I, what do I need to do to influence the system to make what's there available to the plant and in this, in a, in a melt that's adequate. So I don't have to keep adding it. Right. So we're looking at biology. We're looking at the amino chelation. We're looking at the chelation from humic fulvic acid substances. We're looking at things like uh, nitrogen carbon ratios in soil, all of the different types of testing, any data that I could possibly get. I just want to see, you know, now I'm going to, I've collected data for the last year without having things like worms in my soil, right? Without doing cover crops. So now I'm testing, now I'm going and putting in cover crops, adding earthworms. I want to see what processes are different as a whole to see how to maximize the efficiency of the soil. Yeah. Now you're going to have all those data sets going back and seeing what those one little changes do and how they affect the whole system and, and maybe adding mulching and a little bit of cover cropping with the right things. Uh, I've heard some bad stuff about clover um, quite recently in the last year or so um, about it, you know, um, uh, harboring bad pests and stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and other people experimenting with dichondra and other little things like that. But I, I think a lot of those things just come down to soil health and, and like you said, chasing down yeah. the chemistry and, and getting there to it properly. Um, the one question that I had is when you get a sap test and you get it back, um, there's three different forms of sugar that are formulating the total BRICS number. And I know a lot of people that are chasing a high BRICS number to have a high plant health, um, obviously to ward off bugs and pests and stuff like that. Um, So my question to you is, what are you seeing with BRICS levels and improving your BRICS levels or where they're at and how that's going? Okay, so just to be, you know, Frank, I thought the same thing. You know, I had a conception that high BRICS levels meant really high new you know plant health which it there's a correlation to having high bricks and health but i i was under the impression that i could be pathogen and pest free and i used to test with a refractometer which would give me a percentage and it's like that just it's just you know i did that and i made that mistake but that's not real um it can give you an idea of the percentage of plant, I guess, with a refractometer, it can kind of give you like a a rough estimate of everything that would be in there, including sugars. And it's not just like new, it's not just nutrients. It's everything that's in there. There's going to be broken cell fluids. There's going to be plant. There's just so So much more in there. It's very diluted. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just not, oh, this is my bricks. Like this is the sugar and nutrient content. Oh, it's 21% of, it's like, that's not it. You just basically, you know, broke all the cell membranes and kind of squished all of these fluids, vascular fluids and cell, um, and, you know, cell fluids and all that together with, so it's way you too know, broad. cellular, it, it just, you know, I thought the same thing and I did see, and I thought that, oh, there must be something to it because my plants were really healthy and I was getting good bricks numbers, you know, and here's the thing though, bricks will actually change throughout the course of the day. 
right? Because the yeah. plant is constantly, you know, photosynthesizing, creating sugar, translocating that sugar. If it builds it up, oh, I need to go over here because it starts getting windy and these parts of the plant need, need you know, sugars. it's like all these things are happening in real time and people don't really understand. Like if you watch a cell divide, you can watch that thing happen in real time. So all the things that are happening inside that cell are going way, way faster than that. You know, it's like, it's, I mean, it takes nine months for a person to be born, right? To develop inside of a womb. When we're talking about having a cell that can divide in like 20 minutes, <laughs> if anything, they're working, they're working at a pace that's way, way, you know, thousand times faster. So the con- they're constantly moving things around and it's the same with bricks. It depends on when, um, when you're taking the measurement and, you know, so another thing is too, what's a little more, the bit, the best thing to be looking at on the uh, SAP test is if the bricks is, is higher than the sugar content, because that means that you don't want to see the sugar content higher than the bricks, because that means the sugars aren't being complex, which means there's an issue somewhere. Mm, okay. Right. Okay. So that's, if I remember that's remember correctly, because I had spoken with Jenny like at length several times when we were kind of going through a lot of the uh, the information when I first started testing for SAP. So that was one of the important things to look at is if those if those uh, things are being complexed. Another thing that was really important too is because on my on my um, SAP tests, you'll see the total nitrogen content really high. It's always above adequate levels, right? And because I only use amino acids, but you never, but the levels for things like ammonium and for nitrate are always super, super low, like mm. almost non-existent. That's what I had last year too. And they're like, yeah, well, you're not going to have any bug issues or at least, you know, aphids or stuff like that because they're going after those high ammonia levels. Yeah. So there's a correlation between nitrogen and disease. Um, I think Matthew Gates, Sank Angel on IG, which is a colleague of mine, he's a he has, he's an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to these things. Um, but my understanding is that some of these pathogens and some of these insects are looking for a particular type of material that's either easier for them to digest because of the certain microbiomes that they possess or because that's what they're uh, attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know all of the mechanics and internal workings of how that works. Um, but that is something that I know that can be, um, and, sh- and should be looked at when it comes to pest pressure. Okay. So when you get a bricks level back on there, that's not something that's going to, so we need to be looking more at our, uh, nitrogen levels and what kind of nitrogens we have, um, in that, in that sap material, to give us a better look on if we're going to have disease or pest or pressure, pest pressure issues. Yeah. And if you're, you know, 
that test can tell you other things too. It can tell you like if you're, um, you know, if your nitrogen's not being complexed into proteins, you can look at the molybdenum levels and see if those things are, you know, um, not being utilized. If they're storing up in plant tissue, they might not be being utilized. Um, you can, there's just different, there's all kinds of little tricks and I haven't even learned them all, but, um, you know, I try to keep as much data as I can. And then I, you know, when I get collect data, I, I, I review it. Jenny, I think we did a podcast with her, didn't we? Yeah. Um, yep. On uh, the F- FPC or whatever. Future yeah. Yeah. Project. And, uh, you know, she's a, she, for me, is like the, the expert when it comes to kind of understanding, uh, the way that the sap moves all that stuff. So I know which, you know, what I should be looking at as far as mobile nutrients, um, things that aren't mobile, like calcium, making sure you have adequate amounts. I've adjusted, you know, my, my calcium levels for a lot of cultivars, uh, based off of the fact that, um, I can see typically in the tissue, um, if the, if the, uh, amount is being, um, met. Yeah. If it's, if it's, if it's an adequate amount. And a lot of times there's a lot, cannabis is really calcium hungry really calcium hungry. So that, and, um, you know, in organics, one of the things that's, that's difficult is, uh, phosphorus. So making sure that you have adequate supply of phosphorus in the soil that can be converted into phosphate, either through en- enzymatic processes, through nutrient cycling from, uh, different, uh, microbes and from the different plant, uh, photosynthase that they are going to be releasing into the soil because getting, that's that's an, there's a couple of things that are that can be tricky with the organics right that are going to push your yields if you get them correct and that's going to be uh getting your copper your iron and and phosphorus cuz those for me are the three the three nutrients that are hardest to keep in adequate supply yeah and so and you go back to um, using chelated uh, forms of them, which are liquid forms that obviously that started as a sulfate, but they were chelated into a liquid at a 5% solution. And then you're taking, you know, I'm guessing um, experimenting with different levels of that liquid solution in a foliar spray to, to address those things, correct? Yeah, that's what I did um, the, as a foiler. And then I'm using the same, you know, when I do the top dress, I'll do... Uh, the mineral uh, sulfates, yeah. but I'll rotate too, you know, cause I have a, I have a, a large supply of the minerals, right? The whole thing about the organic cultivation side. And the reason why I originally even started doing organic uh, back in, I think 2014 or 2015 is because um, I needed to, the prices of cannabis on the traditional market in California had started to drop and I needed to figure out a way to decrease my overhead because that my bottom line was where my profit lied. So um, I started, I was using, I think, house and garden nutrients back then. And I was adding like 17 different things to a resi and I was using Fox farm soil and I was like amending the soil with extra aeration and like, I started just reading the labels on, on the bottles. And I was like, what's Langbanite? What's, 
you know, copper sulfate, you know, what's all this? And then you start reading, oh, these are used in conventional organic agriculture uh, for large scale production in organics, right? They're using these mined minerals, things like gypsum and potassium sulfate and, you know, with composts. And this is how, how it's done, you know, for large scale organic cultivation. And I was like, I'm going to start going down this rabbit hole. I started switching over to soils. I started messing around with different soil mixes. But, you know, when I got out here and I started doing huge commercial and I wasn't just blowing up houses, um, I, uh, you know, all that same stuff applied and I was and taking it further with the testing is really the, I think the only way to, to get those, you know, larger numbers to get that growth rate where you're not having to, um, you know, push a bunch of chemicals. Yeah. Exactly. And, and doing the right amount of organics. And um, obviously, if you have a test that comes back and you have no copper, there's only certain ways of getting copper back into the system, which most of the time is going to be an inorganic form, a sulfate or something like that to boost those levels back up. And obviously, the goal is to not go over those levels, because then right. it's not considered organic, and you've obviously poisoned the system or altered the chemistry to it. So I want to point that out for people is like, you know, you can be hardcore organics and KNF and all those great things, but you could still be massively missing out on copper, iron, maybe even sulfur. You know, one of the main things that produces terpenes for the plant and quality and smell. Yeah. So um, I'm really trying to push people to understand that, you know, even if you're up on the hill in, in Mendocino or, or in Humboldt or, you know, I was just up there visiting and, um, you know, people brought, you know, plants into shows and stuff like that where physically had mold on it and they just didn't know they were like oh that's just how it is here we're in a a human environment you know we deal with mold it's like well maybe we could fight that from the beginning and front load these things and prevent that stuff from ever happening and give that plant a chance to survive in that climate so uh climate you know climate is is difficult too because you have to remember a lot of these pathogens they they're they're evolving next to these other organisms you know and we have it's, you know, climate can be a real, real challenge for cultivating for sure. But, you know, the thing is, it's, I'm not going to say that just having adequate nutrition is going to, is going to be a cure-all. It's definitely going to help, you know, but you have to take proper uh, protocols for other things like your SOPs for integrated pest management practices, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, and then you have to find the right varieties, right? Because, the variety in the internal mechanisms that operate that plant on a genetic level might not be able to tolerate, you know, high, uh, humid environments, you know? So if you have to rotate those out of the garden and get things that are going to be more tolerant. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a major thing, especially for people in Northern California growing outdoor in greenhouses. And there was years where I spent, gosh, I spent thousands of dollars on beneficial bugs and I'd go back and scout and and there'd be nothing there, you know what I mean? Or they've just dissipated and gone and yeah. I've still got a pest issue. And and yeah, that comes down to, I'm sure, VPD, humidity, no humidity yeah. Yeah. and straight 110 Dude. degrees, me just frying these things out, you know what I mean? So... So, man, and that's the thing, right? Oklahoma is, 
to say the least, the weather here is advent is an adventure because you <laughs> never. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh man. And here's the thing: when you go and order, when you order a strain-specific organism as a biocontrol that has a target range, and it'll tell you every insectary will say, "Hey, this organism operates between this temperature range, this humidity range. It feeds on specifically this, this, this." And if you're fluctuating, if you're in an outdoor environment, or if something happens like where I'm at, and it you know, like it just, the, the temperatures here fluctuate so insanely. Like, you know, it, this year has been so wet last year. It wasn't like this. It's been raining, man, it ra- rained last week, you know, and it's freaking late July. So yeah, push uh, that rain our way, man. We're doing, starting to deal with the fire. So bless it uh, our man. way. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's biocontrols are, are can be really sensitive, especially when we're talking about things that are supposed to be living and, and feeding on the phylosphere. And you have to understand that there's, you know, it would be so awesome if there was like local insectaries, like, hey, these specific, you know, mites that are beneficial are from this area. You're going to be, you know, but that's yeah. not always the case. Yeah, they're used to this just torrential downpours once every week or so, you know what I mean? Or those <laughs> crazy, crazy environments. Yeah. So, you know, but there's, there's, there are good things though, right? So fungus, entomopathogenic fungi are, are wonderful. And there's so many different varieties. There's Bouveria bassiana, so mm. many different strains of Bouveria bassiana. There's metahazarium anisfolate. Probably said that wrong. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of different types of bacteria, like the Bacillus thuringiensis bacteria. There's a lot of different types of um, bacteria and fungus that work really, really effectively as well, and they work really effectively in hot, humid weathers. You know. Yeah. And it really comes down to, I think, is getting on the phone and doing a lot of research and, and how's your environment going to affect those, those beneficial bugs and those beneficial fungi and bacteria and how you can maintain and, and keep those populations going. Cause it's like, it'd be nice if we can just add these things once and then, yeah. you know, they just have the it's perfect environment. <laughs> it's not how it works. And yeah. here's the thing you have to remember too. Um, like if you're like, I spray, uh, I, I, I sell all these, uh, the, the microbe spores, right. For like bacillus, thuringiensis, Bouveria bassiana, all that stuff. So I, and I use these things. So in our greenhouses out here in Oklahoma, we'll get, we'll get, uh, caterpillars that come in, you know, cause of the moths or whatever. And so I have to spray BT. And so I got to spray this BT in there to make sure that these things don't you know, and you have to keep that going. Like you can't just be like, Oh, I sprayed. And then like the problem solved, you have to keep on spraying. What's BT? You know, yeah. BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. Oh, okay, great. So that's yeah. a beneficial. I thought it was like some sort of, uh, um, uh, foliar spray or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I'm using it as. I'm using it as a foiler. But yeah. As a foiler. I'm sorry. I thought you meant some sort of like a, a pesticide or something for caterpillars or something like that. Oh yeah. So yeah. I'm glad we and it works because of the, they create a toxin, you know, that's toxic to caterpillars. So, you know, I could, you know, add that into, you know, my mixing tank and do a foiler application and, 
And that brings me to a question I was trying to ask a little while ago. I totally forgot about uh, these things just sometimes leave you and come back to you at the right times. Um, what kind of foliar spray equipment do you use? Or if you could just walk us through, you know, what, what you're using and how you use it. So it depends on what I'm applying. Mm. So if I'm doing like a, if I'm doing a, a bacteria or anything like that, any uh, microbe type stuff, I usually use um, just a regular sprayer. I have a, I have a, I think it's a 12 gallon battery powered Petra tools. Um, like it's, it can be used as a watering wand. It has different attachments, but I have this attachment, which has four nozzles on it. Oh, I've seen that thing. That thing's cool. It has four nozzles on it and it creates like a nice, a nice distribution, a pretty fine mist. And I can get under the canopy with it. And so I'll spray under the, what I'll do is I'll go down my beds and I'll go under in between each section of plant to make sure I hit all of the bottoms of the canopy. And then I'll go back over that bed and then I'll do a, like a, you know, make sure that I have full coverage over the whole canopy as well. And I'll do that for the whole house, typically with, you know, like my biologicals, if I'm doing Bouveria or BT, or if I'm doing like the Bacillus subtilis and trichoderma combination. Um, or I do, I, I'll also do that with, um, you know, min, like I'll sometimes do that with like magnesium sulfate, oh, you know, Epsom okay. salt. But um, it depends on, so that's, that's, and then I have a fogger too. I have a Petra tools fogger and I'll use the fogger for things like Dr. Zymes, um, which I really like because, um, you can be used as a broad spectrum, uh, uh, insecticide, miticide and fungicide. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's an organic, um, I'll use that in the fogger Pyganic, I'll use in the fogger. If I'm doing like Suffoil X, I'll use that in the fogger. Um, and I like, I like to get use those because I can get, uh, Oh, like a wide coverage and I don't have to go super, super heavy. Like I don't have to saturate the plant, you know, I can do, it's a, a small micron size. So I can go in there, go down my aisles pretty quick get full coverage on everything and then, you know, nice, have, nice. have, have it done pretty well. But I'm also, I think that we're going to be getting a new fogging system from me Too fogger, which is almost like a cloud system where it creates this, this like mist that's so fine. You can literally do a whole house standing still in like 10 minutes. It just little does a little white box that puts out. It's, it's boxes. similar to that, but it's actually a wand. So you can go and you can mist your plants if you want to go down rows with it and you'll guarantee to get complete total coverage. Mm. Is it electrostatic at all? Or cause I know that, Man, that would be crazy. So I have an electrostatic sprayer also from Petra and it has a um, a metal piece on the handle that you have to stay grounded because it will create a field around you, electrostatic field around you. And if you brush by like a leaf of a plant, or if you touch something organic, it will shock you. Ah. Even if you're even if you're holding on to the uh, machine, yeah, the, yeah. The even bar. if you're holding on to the uh, the plate, 
the grounding plate. Mm. So that's the issue with electrostatic sprayers. They're just not fun to use in that because I got I got leaves everywhere, plants everywhere. I'm Dude, down, I mean, like, ah, I know, if like, you if you see my if you've seen my my greenhouse, this man, it's I was just like ah, oof, oof, oof. Yeah. you know, I was just like shit. <laughs> it's like that it game was, when we're kids when you're trying to get the bones out of the little thing and you get zapped every yeah, definitely. So um, I don't use it too much. It would be really nice to see. Oh man, I don't know an electrostatic cloud though. Whew. Mm. I don't know. That would be interesting because <laughs> these things. Because I, I did like a, a demo. They came out and did a demo at our farm, and they were just spray. They were just misting. Uh, I think they're just misting water everywhere, and we're like just and uh, this thing literally it makes clouds like. Hmm. it's it's really interesting and that's what their like their company did they they manufactured uh like cloud site type systems for i think sanitation and then also for like creating air like clouds for air tunnels wind tunnels and stuff oh nice so it's a really interesting piece of equipment it's kind of expensive i think they want like four grand for it oh man but, but we're so, going to get one because I could, we could take, you know, 10 minutes to to do, you know, a greenhouse to do, you know. Uh, it's like, know, oh, I, I forgot do to my... do the foliar spray. Oh, but hold on. No problem. It just takes 10 minutes. You know, yeah. no big deal compared to, you know, me foliar spraying my plants. It took 30, 45 minutes last night and a whole bunch of sweat dripping down off my head and, you know, pumping the sprayer up and doing all that. So yeah. getting back to Petro, uh, foliar spray, Petro, Petro, tools. Petro tools, that would be... Petra, P-E-T-R-A, yeah. Petra, okay. So that would be the recommended brand if you're just going to get into foliar spraying and you've never done it before, grab a Petro. Yeah. Tool. Oh, actually, I think there's even a discount code. You can use code Bokashi. They'll give you like 10% off. Mm, okay. Cool. Yeah. So if anybody wants... I really like their... Um, I like their uh, their Fogger a lot. I use that pretty consistently, but all of, all of the stuff that they've given me has been pretty cool, man. And I use it all the time. I especially like the battery operated one, the 12 gallon one, because oftentimes I'll need to move to like the greenhouses to like my container, which is like, you know, 50 yards away. And I'll, you know, have to do a foiler in there or do, you know, my, uh, IPM or whatever I'm doing. Um, and it's mobile, you know, and I don't need to plug it into anything. So it, even if I wanted to take it into the field or whatever, I could put it on like, I could put that thing in the back uh, of the cart on like a four by or whatever. And you can just, you can spray or whatever. They make all kinds of cool little stuff for farming and making, you know, great for foiler sprays and stuff. Great, great. And obviously you're always using some sort of a surfactant when you're doing a foliar spray. Not always. Not always. Okay. No. What What would you be spraying and not use a surfactant with? Well, like magnesium sulfate, I usually don't use a surfactant when I'm doing like micronutrient uh, foilers. Oh, really? Okay. No. Well, I'm typically, um, I usually do the nutrients through the fogger, through the fogging system okay. because the particle size is so small. So I don't feel like I really need a surfactant. Um, but if you do, uh, Silhouette is a good one. Silhouette. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, and going back, um, 
well, shit, I think we've we've covered a lot here today. Um, what about you? I want to kind of open it up to yourself here, man. Is there something you want to teach the people about today? Uh, to- man, you know, I'm just always learning. I, uh, you know, I get a, a lot of people, people reach out because they see what I'm doing and stuff. And I like to share what I'm doing. I really just encourage people to grow their own uh, cannabis their own food, that kind of stuff. It's, you know, really healthy. It can help you become a little bit more independent. And that's one of the things that like, I want to just keep doing what I'm doing forever. I want to be able to grow weed and not have to go to prison and do all that shit again. So like the more people that do it and get involved and, you know, the communities that are built, they don't only benefit me in that way, but you know, I give out the information and it, I just want to, I want to see that growth, right? I want to see people more independence because we, I need that. I need that. We need that in the world, right? We need to see healthier minds and less poison and we need to see agriculture change and we need to people kind of, I'd like, you know, I work on trying to take better responsibility for my health and for like what I'm consuming. And it's a really, really, really hard, hard journey. Right. And I think that the beginning step is to being, is to be able to get reconnected through growing something and nurturing it and understanding that that's connected to you and it's connected to your health. That's why cannabis is really important to showcase these types of agronomic principles and these types of methodologies, because essentially if we're looking at a high value crop and other farmers that aren't necessarily growing cannabis, but want to, you know, decrease their costs for inputs and learn how to green waste recycle and learn how to do these things on scales that are not just for homesteading, we can essentially affect the health and minds of people everywhere. Right. And so being able to showcase what I'm doing and teach people don't look it just the responsibility just kind of fell on me I didn't ask for anything I was just kind of like hey this is what I'm doing but if I can help out where I can and leave a mark that's better yeah. I mean I think that's I think a lot of that in the organic community in the gardening community in the cannabis community I think that resonates with a lot of us and I think that's the way a lot of us feel and if we can kind of spread that you know, connection. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can all take a little bit more responsibility and uh, grow collectively because um, it only really works if we're, we have like collective mindset on these things. Definitely. Definitely. And it takes, takes a community um, and it's, it's harder to, 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 you know, for any authority figure to have any issue with anything, if the whole community as a whole is, is together and this is what's best for us. And, um, I think, um, any information I hear about people growing food that's so high quality that it's actually medicine for your body is some of the most interesting stuff that I can, you know, get into. Cause that's the ultimate goal is you grow something so healthy and so vibrant that it's just mm. beneficial for your body to uptake and intake. So, um, you know, thank you so much, Brandon, for, for coming on and opening up your brain and your, your mind and, and just being open to helping people because that's what, that's what grassroots is all about. That's why we created this podcast is, you know, your success is our success. 
um, we're not successful unless you're successful. You know, I make a very, very high quality raised bed product that's probably not going to be replaced very often. So, you know, unless you guys are very successful in doing more and more and more and expanding more and more, I'm not going to, I'm not going to survive myself either. So that's why we're here to help and, you guys. You know? And that's the same. That's the same, same with me too, you know, cause I do have a company and I support my family with it and that's, you know, it, it's reciprocated to be able to give out the knowledge and say, Hey, you know, a lot of times these home growers can't go and buy, don't, or don't need 50 pounds of something that is used in a con- conventional agriculture or commercial yeah, agriculture you don't need scale. A 50 pound bag of ag sill to get your boron, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Or sometimes so, not even a one pound. I've gotten one pounds of all these different sulfate minerals and I'm just sitting there looking at it like, geez, I'm going to have that for the rest of my life. Like, Yeah. I mean, when it comes to the micronutrients, a lot of times we're talking about, you know, a third of a teaspoon for a yard of soil. So we're talking about such small quantities of these things that it's, uh, it's a lot of times not economical for someone to, to buy that, you know, so making that available is one of the things that I do. And I try to help people understand how these can be utilized to, you know, increase, you know, plant health and, you know, again, once one when people take the time and care to create something that's really healthy for them it creates a connection yeah so So go follow brandon rust on his instagram and i'm sure on their instagram there's a connection to go through to bokashiearthworks.com and check out your website sure yeah and i've got some merch on there i do some seed drops every once in a while Nice, so, nice. So what what else can we buy on your website? You said you had some beneficials on there? Yeah, so there's I'm going to be adding more. I'm going to be working on some labeling. It's uh we're going to be updating the uh website on Monday. So oh. there's going to be a lot more content on there. We're going to be updating um but yeah, there's all different types of spores, Bavaria bassiana. There's uh Bacillus thuringiensis. There's powders or liquids. Nope, they're all spore powder concentrate uh it's a i think it's 100 billion cfu per per vial yeah they one vial will do um 100 milliliters as a foiler or a drench as biocontrol very efficiently so there's all kinds of stuff on there there's the uh, bacillus subtilis and trichoderma which is um i did an experiment just recently mixing those and doing a solid state ferment with a humic iron carrier and so i'm going to send that out for testing to see if the iron stayed in an available form and to make sure that both of those spore laid it into a form that is going to be active um when it gets into the soil so i have both of those the uh trichoderma and bacillus subtilis i like to use that as a combination to prevent like botrytis and stuff Great. So you're going to buy the, we're going to buy those from you in a powder form, mix it into water and then put it into our foliar spray equipment and get it out onto the plant. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Or drench with it. I drench with the Bavaria. Okay, great, great. That's awesome. I think I'm going to go cruise your website because I haven't added specific beneficials like that. Um, And I think the only other thing that we haven't talked about that I wanted to quickly, maybe if we can go over it super fast is, um, are you using beneficial nematodes in your, in your system? Yeah, I actually just made a post uh, yesterday about using the Steiner name of filth. Yeah, I use those for it's the entomopathogenic uh, nematode that is really effective against things like root aphids, fungus gnats, and a plethora of other different uh, insects. So I use those, yeah. 
What's your preferred place to purchase those nematodes? I always like to ask the people that. And what form is it in a vermiculite? Is that in like how is in it a gel? a gel? And it's from Biobest. Well, it's like not. It's like a spun. It's like a uh, degradable, like spongy gel oh. stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Biobest, though. Biobest. I always recommend people don't go f- through a secondary provider. That they go directly to an insectary. Yes. Yes. Try to cut out those because it's going shipping to one person in one part mm-hmm. of the United States and then and, shipping to and, you and hopefully it's a high quality by the time you get it. And this is dead. actually an aspect where like microscopy work can be really beneficial. Yeah. yeah quickly. Make sure that you have, have live samples. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So then what is your, also, I know um, it's very easy because those nematodes are very, dense so if you put them in a tank of water they sink immediately to the bottom and you might suck up Mm -hmm. all those beneficial nematodes is the first thing and they hit just the first bed and then you got no nematodes in the rest of the whole system what's your your application process so i actually have a a sub pump that mixes the water at the bottom of the res it's make mixing it constantly and i have a pump that go that's like a u-shaped so it just sucks the water up and just keeps it rotating from the bottom up Okay, great, great. I do that with everything that I mix. If it's going into the tank, it's being mixed thoroughly. Beautiful, beautiful. So it's always, always well deeply into solution there. Yeah. Great. All right, man. Anything else that you want to touch on real quickly that we may have uh, not spoken about today? No, man, I'd love to do it again sometime. Um, But my time's getting short. I actually have to, I'm going up to uh, Stealth Recycle, which is, um, I showed them how to make Bokashi out of, they, they're a cannabis green waste uh, facility where they take in people's bio waste. And I showed him how to turn it into Bokashi with a solid state fermentation process. And so I'm going to go up there and check that out and see how they're doing. So Great, great. Awesome, man. You got some really interesting stuff going on there. So everybody make sure you go follow Brandon um, at Brandon, or excuse me, at Russ.Brandon on Instagram. Yeah. Did I say that right? Great. Yep. Great. Well, make sure you follow him, guys, because he's always going to be putting out the just most relevant information for what's impacting him on his farm and his crop to make him successful. So thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you for for coming on today and opening your brain up to all of us here at the Grassroots Living Soil podcast. Yeah, man. I had a good time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.